What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to the Three Down Nation podcast. I'm Justin Dunk, joined by John Hodge and J.C. Abbott. We're discussing the 110th Grey Cup or Coupe Grey. How the city of Hamilton and the Tiger Cats performed as CFL championship hosts. And the 58th Vanier Cup matchup. But first, I want everybody to meet the two newest members of 3 That would be Jean Auge and <laughs> Jumbo Cheeseburger, just to appease some of our commenters out there, fellas. Welcome to 3 Nation. <laughs> oh boy. Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> we uh yeah, uh Jean I, I've had some people suggest that to endear myself to French language media, I should call myself Jean Auge, despite not having any French Canadian background that I'm aware of. Uh, and JC, I'll let you touch on the jumbo cheeseburger thing. Somebody figure out what JC actually stands for. And I, I guess it's, it's self-evident based on the way I look. It's jumbo cheeseburger. I'm named after my favorite meal. Um, and I will only be going by my full official name from now on. All right, jumbo cheeseburger. Let's go. <laughs> now that everybody gets the references, let's move on. Montreal quarterback Cody Fajardo completed 80.7% of his passes, that's 21 of 26, for 290 yards and count him three touchdowns with one interception in the 2023 Great Cup. He hit Tyson Philpott for a 19-yard touchdown with seconds left on the clock to lead the Alouettes to an improbable 28-24 win and earn game MVP honors. Did either of you foresee a performance like that coming from Fajardo? No, and I think that is clear to anybody who listened to last week's show. Uh, Cody Fajardo, 14 touchdown passes in the entire regular season. He's not asked to do a whole heck of a lot on the offensive side of the ball. His team went down 17-7 at the half. They also went down 10-0 early, and I had a lot of people in the press box telling me, this game's done, right? Montreal is not a team that's designed to come back from deficits. They are a team that needs to get up and on them early and then be conservative the rest of the way and hold their opponent down. I didn't think the game was done, but I also did not see Cody Fajardo finishing the game with almost 300 yards and three touchdowns. I want to give full credit to Mr. Fajardo for proving us wrong, for proving all kinds of other people. I know the the Alouettes have called them haters 
wrong, be it other members of the media, fans, pundits, whatever, full credit. And for the record, when I saw Cody Fajardo for his post-game avail, he was joined by his wife and young son. He was holding his Grey Cup MVP trophy. I went over, shook his hand, and I said, congratulations. I then, once the press conference started, asked him how it felt to prove everybody wrong, not just the people who wrote him off in Saskatchewan, but the people who spent all week, like us, saying he wasn't going to be able to get the job done. And to his credit, he took the high road. He said, look, last year I had some trials and tribulations. And after wins, he said, everybody texts you to congratulate you on playing great. He said, when you lose, the texts are a lot slower. But the people who do reach out to you, you know, are in your inner circle of support because the only people who reach out after losses are the people who are real and really truly care. They're not the fake people around you trying to feed off of your hype. And so he took the high road and I thought that was great. Full credit to him. He's a Grey Cup MVP, not just now, but for decades or dare I say centuries to come. And this is his moment, right? He has... Regardless of what happens from here on out, he will always be a Grey Cup champion. Yes, I know he won a Grey Cup as a backup, uh, I believe the third stringer with the Toronto Argonauts in 2017. So his name's already on the cup. But we all know that winning as a starter is worth a whole heck of a lot more than as a third stringer. He is a starting Grey Cup champion. He is a Grey Cup MVP. And for at least one day in November with over three and a half million people watching on television, he proved everybody wrong and brought the Grey Cup back. De La Belle Provence for the first time since 2010. Kudos to Cody Fajardo. Disprover of haters. Let's be clear. I think the criticism of Fajardo throughout his career has been valid. And I think the things we've said about him, even on the podcast last week, are all valid. But this is pro football. Anything can happen on any given game, game day. And all it takes is one exceptional performance to etch your name in history. And that's what Kogi Fajardo did. He played exceptionally well when the moment was biggest and defied all expectations. And even it started the day before because anyone you talk to on that Alouette's team after that victory pointed to Kogi Fajardo's speech to the team prior to their walkthrough on Saturday as the source of their inspiration and their belief in their capacity to win that football game. They talked about how he actually swore for the first time ever in that speech, which anyone who knows Fajardo and his sprinkle of Jesus persona, that's not something he ever does. He's very you know, mild-mannered. He doesn't use poor language. In this occasion, he dropped a few F-bombs. He apparently outswore Jason Moss. And when I talked to him in the <laughs> locker uh, after the game, he said, you know, he knew that Frick or Frack were not going to cut it on this occasion. He had to, absolutely had to use the language that was going to resonate with the team. He made that decision. It brought some of his teammates to tears, apparently, in the locker room. They got so emotional, and they used that to fuel their victory the next day. By the way, outswearing Jason Moss is like outrunning Usain Bolt. Credit to him. That is, that is remarkable. Well done. Guys, this is what is going to stick with me, okay? Gold right, Y tough, 775, X deep, Frisco, W poco, Y nut squat, Z snap. That play 
will live as one of the greatest in CFL history. If you can't decode that, that was the final offensive play from the Alouettes in the game. Cody Fajardo delivers a strike to Tyson Philpot on a little bit of a post corner out. It was more of a post than it was anything to the corner in one-on-one coverage. And really, Fajardo put that ball on the money. Philpot, yes, had to come down with it, but that play is going to cement Fajardo's legacy as a Grey Cup starter. It will go down as one of the most clutch plays in Grey Cup history. And for his credit, there were numerous teammates in the locker room while they were celebrating and drinking all kinds of stuff and the cigars were going. They came over while I was following Fajardo around and interviewing him and said, tell him how you really feel. Tell him how you really feel about the haters. But he kept it on the up and up, didn't let any F-bombs go during any of his postgame interviews except for to describe his speech that JC talked about. And I think one of the things that kind of went under the radar with Fajardo all season long was the way that he transformed in his mental approach. And that was very clear from that speech on Saturday afternoon at Tim Hortons Field, day four, the Alouettes call it. And to me, that was clear for the majority of the season. We really only heard from Fajardo and honestly wrote about him on 3downnation.com when he was talking about the confidence in his team hoisting the Grey Cup over his head. Guys, remember when we first heard that quote? I'm sure we all laughed, as did many others across the country. But he went out and did it. He lived up to that. And he has clearly been a leader for this Alouettes team. Yes, his regular season numbers were not great. But that leadership is something that oftentimes can't necessarily be quantified in this statistics-heavy world that we live in. Guys, I'll ask you a question. Right now, if you had to pick one of these two players to start for you in a Grey Cup, who would you pick? Cody Fajardo or Zach Caleros? Zach. Uh, I mean, we just saw it. So I... A hard time picking Zach after his last three Grey Cup performances. That's tough. I don't know if Fajardo could ever do it again, but I guess I have to say Fajardo. It's definitely an intriguing question. I'm not going to go out here and say that Fajardo is a better quarterback than Kalaros, but it shows how much Fajardo rose to the moment, and I don't think that that can be understated. This guy was run out of town along with Jason Moss in Saskatchewan for the reason that they weren't in a home gray cup in 2022. And then what did the Riders do? They brought back the same head coach and essentially the same script played out. They could have made the postseason, had a bunch of losses at the end of the year. Now Craig Dickinson is gone, probably watching from somewhere, as did Jeremy O'Day, Moss and Fajardo on that stage, screaming as many profanities as they wanted the haters while they're lifting the gray cup over their heads. It is one of the best redemption stories in CFL history, and as much as people doubt him, Fajardo tuned out that outside noise, which is something that I don't think he did while he was in the fishbowl in Regina. He admitted publicly in multiple press conferences that he read social media and that it got to him. But I think just going based off of his Twitter or X account, that he wasn't on social media much, if at all, during the season. He hadn't tweeted since training camp some pictures with Pierre Carl Pelado, and then 
from then, it was all the way until he won the Grey Cup. Now there's some activity there. So I think he did a great job of focusing in on the task at hand, and that was leading an improbable run for Montreal to the Grey Cup. Have either of you guys read Mice and Men by John Steinbeck? I have not. I don't no. think Dunk. Dunk. Okay, Dunk did not. Okay, that's not a surprise. I'm not sure. The Basically, and, and by the way, it's a dope book. Y'all should read it. But essentially, the book is about a lumbering farmhand named Lenny who goes around and, without knowing his own strength, will squeeze to death the things that he loves most in life. And I feel like the Saskatchewan Rough Riders fans have something in common with Lenny because they love the Riders so desperately much that they will squeeze to death the people in that organization at any opportunity that they get instead of just giving them a break to try to do the thing that they do best. Every player, it doesn't matter if there's 10 fans in the stands or a million fans in the stands wants to win. They want to, they're doing what they can to win. And by ramping up the pressure, you are not doing any favors for them or yourself. You should passionately support the team. What you should not do is add undue pressure to make Regina a even worse experience by bothering people at grocery stores and, and, and doing all those, sending nasty tweets, right? Just let people do their work because obviously Jason Moss was not at his best last season. Obviously Coda Fajardo was not at his best last season and they're now both great cup champions. So to me, that's the word of caution for the Saskatchewan Rough Riders. Don't be like Lenny, the farmhand from John Steinbeck, hashtag read books, hashtag literature. You need to be more open, celebrate the successes without slamming the failures because obviously this is something Fajardo was capable of doing. And by the way, he did it with a bunch of guys who just one year ago, nobody knew who they were, right? The Alouettes win to training camp. With one proven receiver, his name was Greg Ellingson. He caught one ball this year. One ball. Anybody know who Cole Speaker was? Anybody have their hand up pounding the table for Austin Mack? I mean, Tyson Philpott had a good rookie year. Keon Julian Grant coming on a little bit. But at the end of the day, he did this with a bunch of guys who nobody thought would do anything. He mentioned how much being number nine in the power rankings boosted this team this year. And I'll say, first of all, good for you. Secondly, I don't regret putting you nine because holy smokes, you guys look terrible on paper at the start of the year. But guess what? They improved over the course of the season. They added pieces. They removed some guys who weren't working out. Credit to them. They got it done. And now they're Grey Cup champions forever. Very easy to make Fajardo the story here and deservedly so. But I think you also need to highlight the fact that those guys that nobody had ever heard of before this year, each and every one of them seemed to make at least one big impact play in this game in terms of his receiving core. Obviously, Tyson Philpock with the with the game winning catch at the end, like a fantastic route to be able to do that. Austin Mack, I thought, frankly, obviously it skews quarterback heavy, but could have been the MVP of that game with some of the plays he made over 100 yards receiving, and two absolutely absurd catches. I mean, boxes out Dietrich Nichols early in that game, 
to set up Montreal's first touchdown, which was an incredible play in its own. And then later in the game, in the third quarter, coming up with that one-handed grab while Demario Houston is absolutely mugging him. And I don't know how a flag didn't come out on that play, but it didn't matter because Austin Mack caught it with one hand while falling down. That wasn't a great throw by Fajardo. It was behind him, and Mack came back to that, made that play. But the other guys, too, Cole Speaker, if he doesn't make that catch on third down, on third and five on the final drive, this team doesn't win that game. And Tyler Sneed, a five foot seven, 174 pound rookie, makes the key kickout block on William Stanback's early touchdown run. That's absolutely incredible for a guy of his side. So each and every one of those unknown receivers stepped up at some point in that game to make a play, and they deserve some credit for this as well. Definitely right, JC. And for the record, I don't think Fajardo undergoes this transformation if he doesn't leave Saskatchewan. I know that seems weird and kind of I agree. putting blame on Dickinson and O'Day. Mm-hmm. And Hodge, I think you're on board there, JC. You probably are too. But it just goes to the fact of Hodge's point there. So I think full credit to Fajardo for undergoing this transformation and working with what he had. Admittedly, a veteran running back there in Stanbeck, but a bunch of new pieces in the receiving core, an offensive line that did have a good amount of experience as well, I think was an underrated part of this team. But, you know, this defense made some timely plays as well. You look at the back of the end zone interception from KB and Ento that in my mind really turned everything in this game because, Hodge, you've watched him up close, live, I mean, for a number of games now, Caleros that is, After he threw that INT, trying to force a corner ball to Kenny Lawler there when Nick Dembski appeared to be open on the flat route underneath for a much easier throw, Claros bent over and seemed exasperated. Usually, he might make a mistake, jog off the sideline, and doesn't look much different from when he throws a touchdown pass or a big completion. But that, to me, was the first sign that perhaps it could actually go Montreal's way and I had a bunch of unknown players on defense to start the year as well you look up and down that roster yes Sean Lemon joined the team and then recruited Darnell Sankey to help anchor this squad but Tyrese Beverett was the guy that was mainly a special teamer in Hamilton they let him go he signs in Montreal turns into a star Reggie Stubblefield is a guy that was Montreal's top rookie that balled out consistently all season long Mustafa Johnson came a long way probably due in part to the help of Lemon. But this team is riddled with those guys. And the one guy in the back end that you knew could play at a high level coming from U sports and having a little bit of a time in the NFL was Mark Antoine DeCroix. And he was a guy that had his fingerprints on this game as well. So this was full value, a team win for Montreal. But Lowell Ugwak, the Canadian rookie, who, let's be honest here, I bashed. Montreal in our draft shows for picking him at number seven because he had a bad final season after transferring to TCU. He couldn't really decide whether he was going to be a D tackle or D end. I had some serious doubts. And when he got on the field, he did nothing but excel all season. And he made two critical plays in that football game, right? He drops back and nearly picks off Kalaros early on an incredible awareness play from him he also stuffs Brady Oliveira in the hole with the biggest hit of the season which made everyone in the stadium gasp and then also if you look at the video 
of Montreal preparing for Winnipeg's final offensive play of that game with 13 seconds left, where they still technically have a chance to win. It's Lawal Ugwak, the rookie, who identifies the fact that there's a punter on the field and starts signaling to the sideline with his leg, saying it's going to be an onside kick play to try and win the game. He's the one who identified that at the end of the game, which is absolutely absurd for a Canadian rookie to make those types of plays in a game. He's another guy who deserves a lot of credit. Well, and every time the CFL draft rolls around, we get the same comments from people. The draft doesn't matter. None of these guys do anything. <laughs> well, Tyson Philpott and Marc-Antoine Decroix and the Wall Uguac and Nick Dembski and Brady Oliveira and all the other Canadian Christian stars Matt. who made great plays. Christian Matt. I mean, I wasn't going to get into the Hoggies, but a bunch of offensive linemen obviously played well. They're all banging the table, raising their hand. Yes, there are lots of guys who come out of the CFL draft who never do anything. You want to know what that has in common with guys in the NFL draft, in the NBA, in the NHL draft, and all those other shows? Uh, everything. Because, yeah, that happens in every single draft. That, that some guys, just for whatever reason, injuries, whatever, don't do anything. But some guys do, and they become stars at the biggest stage of the game. I'm going to read and answer this question myself because we've already started answering it. For the second straight year, the Winnipeg Blue Bombers lost in the Grey Cup. Those defeats have come by a total of five points, one against Toronto and four versus Montreal. Did Winnipeg let another one get away? I will say I thought the Alouettes won this game more than the Bombers lost it. The Alouettes made a ton of mistakes, and yet the Bombers were not able to take advantage. Um, Something I will point out, the Alouettes on paper lost the turnover battle 3-2. to two. I thought Fajardo's interception for all intents and purposes was not a turnover because it went 50 yards in the air on second down and Evan Holm made an amazing catch to bring it down. But it didn't hurt his team, right? Joseph Zima had an awful day punting the ball for the Montreal Alouettes. Getting a like 50 net yard interception was not a bad thing for the Alouettes. However, Joseph Zima's punting I thought should have essentially counted as two extra turnovers for the Owls because two of them traveled less than net 20 yards given the, the penalties that he took for illegal punts out of bounds. So the Bombers got short fields. They had every opportunity to win this game, and they didn't. Um, Zach Kolaris, I think you officially have to talk about his track record, in the not even just in the Grey Cups, but in the playoffs, especially since the pandemic. I tweeted this out the other day. In the six playoff games he's played since the CFL's canceled season in 2020, Kolaris has thrown for 1,224 yards. That's an average of essentially 200 yards a game. Four touchdowns with eight picks. I mean, one to two touchdown interception ratio is obviously terrible. He talked about the interception after the Grey Cup. He said that it was an RPO. He should have given the ball to Brady. But, Dunk, I agree with you. If you, if you keep the ball to throw it, you've got Dembski wide open as the outlet man. Instead, he decided to go fancy and try to drop it into Kenny Lawler. Well, if you overthrow it, that means either it's an incompletion or Lawler makes a highlight reel grab, which, by the way, he's done all season. Instead, he underthrew it, which is the only place he couldn't have put it. And it resulted in an interception by KB on Ento. So to me, I do think it's fair to criticize Zach Kolaris. Does that mean I don't think he'll ever win another great cup? No, I still think that Zach Kolaris is certainly a top three and very possibly the number one quarterback in this league still, but he has for the last two great cups and really the playoffs, the last three years 
let his team down. He has not been good enough when it has mattered the most. Well, the other guy that, or you mentioned it there that, that Caleros should have been hanging off the ball, or that's what he inferred on that last play. And I think there's some merit to that because Brady Oliveira averaged 6.3 yards per carry in that game and almost disappeared late. And I know when, when Montreal comes back and takes the lead, it becomes a little bit more difficult to run the ball, but Montreal couldn't really stop it. Besides the KB and Ento uh, fumble that, that he forced earlier in that game, which I think you can hang squarely on Oliveira for not protecting that ball. Every play that he made in that game was electric and he was pounding, pounding the rock. And when you have a chance to control the tempo of a game late, either when you're trailing by not very much or you're in front as much as Winnipeg was for much of that football game, you can't go away from a back like that. And it seemed like the Blue Bombers did. And it was a critical error in their game plan. And they committed a number of critical errors. You talk about press coverage on that last uh, touchdown throw to Philpot, right? And a lot of people are going to criticize Richie Hall for how he handled his defense on that final drive. And I think rightfully so, but there have been a number of errors from the Bombers in terms of their game plan in these Grey Cup, Grey Cup games, and they deserve to be pointed out. I mean, Adam Big Hill should not have been on the field for that game at all. Let's be frank about that. Dalton Schoen probably shouldn't have been either. He was basically a non-factor, three catches for, I think, 36 yards and disappeared in the second half. But at least he wasn't a liability. Adam Big Hill, for probably the first and maybe only time in his career, was a liability on that football field. And Montreal went after it to take the lead in the fourth quarter when they hit Cole Speaker for his touchdown over top of Adam Big Hill. And I just hope that that is not our lasting image of number four in our mind is Adam Big Hill chasing after number 17 for that touchdown in the end zone because he deserves to be remembered for so much more than that. But because he wanted to play so badly and because O'Shea has always leaned towards his veterans and getting them on the field and no doubt wanted him to get his name engraved on the Grey Cup again, he was put in a situation where he hurt his team in what was one of the biggest games of his career. And that's really unfortunate. The moment that stood out most to me in terms of the Bombers' frustration was, Hodge, what you experienced in the locker room post-game with Brady Oliveira. Can you break that down, how that went? So the locker room opened up. I'll start in a slightly direction first. Locker room opens to the media, and there's like a shadow, like, foop, gone. And I just caught it as he walked by, and it was Stanley Bryant in full street clothes leaving. Obviously, Stanley Bryant, future Hall of Fame left tackle, did not want to talk to the media, did not want to answer questions about his future. This happened moments after Zach Kolaris tearfully at the podium started talking about how you want to win this game for guys who, who maybe it is their last game or maybe who won't be back. I don't think it would be reasonable to look at those circumstantial pieces of evidence and say, okay, this means that Stanley Bryan is gone. This is his last game. However, I do think it's fair to take it as an indication that that could be the case. Um, Brady Oliveira was the first guy everybody went over to. He was in tears, uh, very emotional, started to answer a question. Uh, the team's director of communications came around and said, hey, guys, how about we give him, give him five minutes? And uh, that's what we did. We came back to Brady a few minutes later. 
he started to get a little bit fiery. He said, you know what? Like they couldn't stop the run. You know, he, he was asked essentially, were you surprised that your team didn't run the ball more? And he said, well, do you, do you got, he started asking the media. He's like, well, do you guys think they could stop us? And then that same director of communications came around and started going easy, easy, easy. Cause you know, heaven forbid an athlete says something interesting after the great cup. Uh, but anyways, it uh, he, he was obviously fiery. He wanted to win that game for his team. And something else I'll say is taped above his locker was a screenshot from tsn.ca of an interview that Darnell Sankey had done on radio saying that if his team got physical with Brady Oliveira, that he was that that the Alouettes were going to win. Essentially saying that Brady Oliveira can't take that type of punishment. So Brady was motivated. He's a pending free agent. We don't know if he'll be back in Winnipeg. He's on the record as saying he wants to be back, but he's also just had one of the best seasons in CFL history by any running back and a top two season in CFL history by a Canadian running back. And at 26, he is obviously in the prime of his career and could command huge dollars in the open market. So that was the setting that I saw in the locker room. That's what I experienced. And in terms of the anger dunk, I will say this too. I was in Winnipeg's locker room after the Grey Cup lost in Regina. In Regina, it was like a funeral. There was no sound. There was no talking. There was nothing. It was just guys silently hugging each other and slowly kind of, you know, coming around to shower, whatever. But the room felt shocked. It just felt like these these men had never even considered the possibility that they weren't going to win that game until the very last second when they had to watch the Toronto Argonauts storm the field with the Grey Cup. It hadn't occurred to them that they wouldn't win. This year, it felt different. It felt angry, as if they suddenly realized exactly how much this was going to suck to sit around with this loss for the next six months and then have to spend all of next season answering questions about, hey, so you know what? You guys have dropped two straight gray cups, blah, 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 blah. That's just my perception of how I perceived it last year versus this year. I will also say there was yelling and screaming in the locker room this year, not at each other and not like in the main area where the media was, but you could hear guys in the shower room and the training or whatever, screaming in frustration, also not at each other. This wasn't two guys jawing at each other. This was just people screaming in frustration, not unlike, you know, how you might do it while trying to put together Ikea furniture or something like that. It was just anger and frustration And uh, so the vibe was definitely different. And I do think that this team is going to have to be very strong, very galvanized if they're going to get back to another great cup, because the pressure is only going to be more and more and more each prevailing time they've done this. They've now done this twice. Heaven forbid it happens three times in a row. There are two things there that really stand out to me in the locker room. First, Brady Oliveira almost voicing his frustration, but really what he almost didn't say really actually says it all in terms of how clamped down Michael Shea likes to be with these guys and how they address the media. But it was very clear that Olvera wanted to continue to get the ball and run the rock and pound away at the Alouettes, especially with Winnipeg up in this game multiple times to possessions. So I think that was one of the mistakes the Winnipeg Blue Bombers made. The other thing that stands out, even though O'Shea necessarily won't admit this publicly is that they pay attention to the media because that headline pasted in Oliveira's locker 
was used for motivation. So O'Shea is very careful because he or he doesn't want his players giving out potential motivation to the other team, but they'll use it for motivation in Winnipeg. I absolutely think that Winnipeg blew this game. They should have won it, especially considering the way they started the game and plus field position went down the field on two straight drives to start the game and got points and went up a quick 10, nothing that this should have been a runaway for the blue bombers. I think they let Montreal get back into this game, gave them momentum, especially in the second half. Winnipeg, had all of the momentum going into halftime. Up 10, 17-7. Shane Goche, excuse me, had just stuffed Montreal on third down at the goal line. Everything was set up for Winnipeg to win this football game, but they did not play well, especially in the final 30 minutes and obviously the last 15. And I understand Richie Hall calling what he usually calls in the red zone. He likes cover zero. But Fajardo knew it, and so did the Alouettes. And Moss had a talk with Fajardo on the sideline and said, if you can just buy a little bit extra time here before it was actually on the play, Kyrie Wilson gets home, and Fajardo, Fajardo did just that, then they felt like Phil Pot could get open on an in-breaking route without the safety in the middle of the field. I think that made it much easier on Fajardo to have this Grey Cup moment that will live forever. They would have mixed it up there. I think you would have put more pressure on these guys considering the clock was ticking along, Hodge. You were saying it. Montreal was pretty lackadaisical. A lot of time. In the way they approached that drive, that's it. On the other side, I don't think they wanted to leave Winnipeg any time to get the ball back. But I really felt like if you mixed, mixed up the look and didn't send as much pressure as Hall sent, that we could be talking much differently about this game. The Bombers got the ball back with two minutes and 54 seconds. Oliveira stuffed for two yards on the first play. Zach Kolaris took a sack on the second play. So you could say, well, you know, if Brady wanted the ball more, you know, you've got to get more than than two yards on first down because second and eight is probably, even in that situation, a passing down. Now, obviously, Zach can't take a sack there either, but the Bombers did only give Brady 20 touches, and it's not like they're saving him for next week. Right, they could have easily given him 30 touches in this game. He's got he's certainly got the conditioning to do that. He just had a week off right before the West Final. So I was surprised they didn't use him a little bit more. One other thing I will say, slightly to echo JC, but also to bring a little bit more to this, is I thought this team made a, a huge mistake, and this is a fatal flaw of Mike O'Shea's, quite frankly, when it comes to especially Adam Big Hill. When quoted after the game. Mike O'Shea said, nope, I don't regret at all starting Biggie or, or or playing Shone. That was the right decision because you have to give a chance for guys to be great. And I fully respect that. I also fully respect the fact that, you know, it, Adam Bakehill is a, is a first ballot Hall of Famer. He He's an incredible player. And I will also say, as someone who's covered Adam Bakehill now for years, he is a genuinely good person, and he's wonderful to work with in the media. I have nothing but the utmost respect for, for, for Adam Bakehill. However, this is also a situation where Adam Bakehill is a 35-year-old playing with a torn calf. First of all, no business being out on the field. Secondly, what message does that send to the rest of your organization? Hey, guys who are currently healthy but on the one-game injured list. Hey, guys in the practice roster. We respect that you're professionals, but you know who's better than you? This 35-year-old with one leg. Yeah, he's still better than you. 
Like, what what are we doing? What are we doing? Giving guys a chance to be great? More like giving guys a chance to hobble on one leg and look like they shouldn't be out there. Because that's exactly what was the case for Adam Bakel. Dalton Schoen looked a little bit better. Uh, by the way, if you want another example of how clamped down these guys are in Winnipeg, Dalton Schoen was twice asked what his injury was. He declined to say both times. I also asked him, as did another member of the media, what percentage were you at today? And both times he declined to say how injured he was. All he was willing to say was, I wasn't fully healthy. So in other words, he had an undisclosed injury and was hurt in undisclosed amount, which even after a Grey Cup where there's no competitive advantage left to be had, not that I think there would have been one to start with anyways, they still don't want to say, which kind of boggles my mind. But anyways, those two should not have been in the game, and it's an indictment of this team's depth, or it's an indictment of the coaching staff's willingness to use that depth for a big game. Because we just talked a bunch about in our first segment, the Alouettes relying on unproven players and young guys and rookies to make all these plays. The Bombers never gave their rookies a chance to do much of anything this year. If you look at their rookie of the year list, they only had eight players who were even eligible for the award. And the only two who really played like a substantial amount of time was Anthony Bennett, the team's first round pick out of Regina, who didn't start any games, but just was a rotational guy. And Jamison Sheehan, the punter, who had honestly a poor gray cup with a couple of really awkward punts. So to me, this is a veteran-laden team, which is really helpful to get you to a gray cup, but it's not optimal when you get there and you've got a bunch of battered and bruised guys in their early mid thirties who might not be playing their best ball. You've got to, you, you've got to have balance, right? We talked about this last week, the BC lions lack of balance on offense hurt them in the West final Winnipeg's lack of balance in terms of its age and its youth, I think hurt them in the gray cup. Yeah. And it's only going to get more difficult for this team going forward. We've talked about the uncertainty within that organization in terms of the expiring contracts for general manager Kyle Walters and his assistant general managers, Ted Gavaya and Danny McManus. But by all indications, if Mike O'Shea is there, they're going to skew to their existing veterans. That's just what he's all about. That's his cultural thing. And it's been successful for the Bombers, right? He has built a culture where you love your teammates and you work for the guy beside you. And you rely on those veterans, and that's been great. But those veterans are getting to the cliff, and everybody goes over the cliff at some point, whether it's at 37 or 35 or 33 or 30. Everybody hits it at some point. And right now it looks like a number of impact players for the Bombers are about to hit that decline after we've been saying it for years. They tailed off at the end of the season. They've got started to get hurt. They are contemplating retirement, and it's going to be a lot harder for the Bombers to get back to the Grey Cup to try and get this dynasty talk back on track if they don't make a serious change and get a youth movement into that organization because they haven't done a good enough job over the last number of years at getting younger at the positions where it matters. The one thing to me, guys, that I think was understated throughout the entire week is the fact that the general manager of a team that's been to four straight Grey Cups, and I know we talked about it on the podcast leading into the game, does not have a contract for the 2024 season. 
Like that is unbelievable. And the reason why I think it matters here is because the situation behind the scenes has gotten flat weird. Okay. Let's say if you're a player who's in tune with what's going on and the majority of the players on the blue bombers are, wouldn't you think that it would just be somewhat natural for your general manager and head coach to speak at least somewhat regularly. Well, it doesn't really happen in Winnipeg. There's not that much communication between Kyle Walters and Mike O'Shea. And according to TSN, it's O'Shea now who is making at least all of the game day roster decisions for this team. So if you're a player, and yes, O'Shea values culture, but you're walking around IG Field and you're in there every day, you're in meetings and film and working out, and you don't see anything even remotely close to a decent working relationship between your GM and your head coach, would you not think that's weird? Like to me, I would wonder what is going on here. So I think part of what is going on behind the scenes is starting at least a little bit to affect this team. The guys will never admit it, but when you're around that, you know, 24 seven for six months at IG field, you at least have to take notice. So I think this whole situation needs to be fixed. I wish there was some realism in terms of the way that they talked about this, but it makes zero sense. Football operations cap. That's just an excuse. It's bogus. If you really believe in your GM who has made some key decisions to help you get to four straight gray cups, then there would be a contract there. There is other things going on behind the scenes that I doubt will ever be addressed publicly that are the reasons why he does not. But the situation just does not make sense to me. I'm not saying it's the reason they've lost the last two straight Grey Cups, but it does not help you win, and I'll leave it at that. One more thing I'll add, and we have this article coming out Wednesday morning. We're recording this Tuesday, but Winnipeg's free agent list we've got for Wednesday Montreal's free agent list we've got for Thursday. There are some very long free agent lists in the CFL this year. Winnipeg's is not necessarily standing alone. But when you look at the list, like you've got guys like uh, Dietrich Nichols, arguably the best halfback in the league. You've got both of their big ticket defensive ends, Willie Jefferson and Jackson Jeffcoat. You've got guys like Janarian Grant, arguably the best returner in the league. Dalton Schoen, arguably the best deep threat in the league. You've got... They're two all-star tackles, Stanley Bryan and Jermarcus Hardrick. Like, if you have a GM in place for next year, they can get on this list early and start extending guys during the season. Because when you're, you know, 12-3 and three and you've won the West Division for another year and everybody's feeling great, everybody's feeling great, everyone's holding hands around the campfire – it's really easy not to get everybody. Some agents are going to say, no, thank you. We're going to, we're going to go test out the market, but it's easy to get occasionally some guys who go, you know what? Yeah. I don't need to wait. I love this place. I love this is my home. I want to re up right now. And you can start to whittle that free agent list down. Now we're in a situation where guys are going to the off season with a bad taste in their mouth for the second straight year. The team still doesn't have a GM and it's like, holy smokes. If this thing goes off the rails, it could be really bad. Maybe now is the time to pull the shoot and get out of Winnipeg while this dynasty, if you want to call it that, I personally don't think it's a dynasty because we've only won two. But, you know, while this 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 big run of success, maybe now is the time to get off the train. Like maybe this is the last stop. I don't want to fall off the rails. I want to get off the train while it's still safe to do so. And by not having a GM, they weren't able to do that. So 
certainly an interesting season in Winnipeg coming up or off season in Winnipeg. I should say it, uh, this team could be bad. Oh, and by the way, one last thing I'll say about the great cup. We should, we should move on. I was talking to a national member of the media after the game and they straight up said, and this dynasty is over. This window is closed. This team is not going to get back to another great cup. And I said, what are you talking about? And they were like, well, do you think there's a chance they could be in the great cup game next year? And I said, buddy, the Alouettes didn't have an owner nine months ago. They just won the great cup. Like it's a nine team league. Any team can get back. I do think there is a chance the bombers are going to get back, but that window is certainly starting to close. It already started to close last year. It's another amount shut. What percentage? I don't want to say, but I do think that getting back will be tougher. I don't think this team will win a 14-game regular season next year. If they get back to the Great Cup, it might have to be as an 11-win team, maybe a 12-win team in the regular season. But I do think that at least some amount of uh, degradation or, or, or some amount of decline will happen for next season. Does that mean they can't get back? No, I think they can get back. The Alouettes just proved anybody can get there. They didn't have a starting quarterback nine months ago. They were the bottom team in the power rankings, even just five months ago. I think they can get there, but it's going to be a tougher battle than they've had for a number of seasons. The Tiger Cats in the city of Hamilton hosted Grey Cup week in the hammer. How did the team and city do with one of Canada's largest sports events? You can't credit them for one thing, and that was the weather, because for a week in mid-November, it was pretty spectacular in the GTA and more specifically in the Hamilton area. There was a little bit of rain one day, but other than that, it was awesome. There was some wind at the stadium on game day, but that's to be expected at Tim Hortons Field or Iverwind Stadium back in the day. Everyone knows it comes in off the lake there. But overall, guys, I thought it was a great week for the Ticats and City of Hamilton as hosts of this major event. They didn't really get to do it in full force in 2021 because of COVID restrictions. I really thought it was awesome. They put on spectacular shows, getting shaggy to the CFL Awards at Casino Niagara, Casino Niagara, excuse me, having Carrie Underwood, whether that was sort of happenstance or whatever, they still had her in the city on the same day as Grey Cup week was going on on Friday night. And then having Green Day for the halftime show, that seemed to be universally loved. So overall, I think from a festival standpoint, James Street was shut down and you could walk that street. It's one of the nicest streets in Hamilton in terms of you know shops and places to eat. JC and I had a wonderful dinner at Rapscallion. We were feeding each other oysters and all the rest and had a great dessert like it was awesome from the hamilton convention center where all of the teams had their parties in there that was very well run so i thought that overall it was a performance that can get hamilton back another gray cup in the future yeah, I, I loved everything I saw from the Ticats and from the city of Hamilton. I saw a different side of the city in this great cup than I had the previous times I'd been there for other types of events and a much better side of the city. That meal at Rapscallion, top five meal in my life. I know that's unrelated to the great cup at all, but man, that was a highlight of the week. But the great cup festival, you know, I didn't get a chance last year in Regina, the first great cup I ever covered to actually go down and hang out at the festival. So I don't really have anything to compare it to, 
but it was fantastic to be around all the fans, to see all the energy from across the country for this great game. And it was exceptionally run by by all accounts. Uh, Stamps House was popping. I thought the BC Lions Den did a great job as well. Saw some people get screeched in by the Atlantic Schooners. <laughs> You know, it was a great experience from top to bottom. And the game itself, I thought, was a little bit better than it was in Regina, particularly because the weather was better. There were less empty seats because people who bought tickets and then their team wasn't there decided to actually show up to this game. And so it was a better atmosphere than it was a year ago. Full credit to the city of Hamilton for the Ticats organization for putting on a tremendous show throughout the week. Yeah, I thought the game obviously being better helped. I think that's something that the amazing finish to the 109th Grey Cup in Saskatchewan maybe clouded over is the fact that the first three quarters of that game sucked. Like, like they were so bad. It was painful. You're going, oh my God, I hope we get a good finish because otherwise this is going to be the most forgettable Grey Cup in history. And then, of course, we got an amazing fourth quarter. So that saved it. But uh, this one I thought was better all the way through. I love that the stadium was full for the reasons you mentioned, JC. By my guess, I would say the Grey Cup last year was maybe 65% full. This one was actually packed. The weather was great. I thought Green Day had one of the best halftime performances in history for the Grey Cup. So I, I will give rave reviews, but I, I will qualify like JC. This was only my second Grey Cup in person for the entire week. So I do not have a large frame of reference. I will say the parties were better attended in Regina. Obviously the, the riders party like Riderville was insane last year. I would guess again, just, just a rough guess. I would guess a minimum of 5,000 people at that party at the convention area in Regina last year. The numbers were obviously not as big this year, but I thought the rooms were a nice size where it still felt full. It felt energized Um, So I I would say maybe the parties were better in Regina, but everything else was as good or better in Hamilton. Also, one more thing I'll add. I'm not sure this was previously reported. Apologize if it was. But during his State of the League address, Randy Ambrosi confirmed that the CFL took over the entire 2021 Grey Cup. And he said that was the CFL's Grey Cup. This is the Hamilton Tiger Cats Grey Cup. So kudos to the Ticats. All of the people, and by the way, shout out to the comms team for the CFL, people like Lucas, OP, G, Herb, Marie's, the event planning people. Uh, Marie's helps head the events for the CFL. They did a great job. They were great to us all week and uh, can't say enough positive things about that crew. So I had, a, I had a great time and I'm excited for next year in Vancouver because with all due respect to Regina and Hamilton, Neither is Vancouver. So I'm I'm excited to be on the West Coast next year. The weather in Hamilton was actually a little bit better than it was on the West Coast when I was in Vancouver the previous week. That said, to give a little context, I've been to a number of Grey Cups now. The one in Toronto, I believe it was in 2016, when Henry Burris led the Red Blacks to the Grey Cup Championship. Just didn't have a feel to it. I remember the fans just not liking that week at all. It was pretty spread out in terms of where the events were. And that's what I really liked about this one is it was central in terms of all the fan parties, right? You didn't have to go very far. You could walk to James street where there were a bunch of other things going on as well. The gray cup in Ottawa, I believe it was in 2017 when Toronto won, was pretty good too, because they have all of those bars and restaurants around the stadium. And there's this massive building where it seems like they probably have farmer's markets every weekend there near 
Lansdowne Park where a lot of the team parties were. And I thought the Ottawa one was pretty good, but you know, it's a little bit of recency bias, but I think it's probably the best one that I've been to and experienced fully because when you first go to a Grey Cup and you guys can speak to this, I'm sure as a member of the media, Hodge, your quote was you're drinking from a fire hose because yes. there's so many media availabilities there's so many things that you want to do. And of course we want to turn out as much content and quality content as we can at three And that's just surrounding the game and the media availabilities that you get. That has nothing to do with, you know, the amount of people that you meet and talk with and that sourced kind of information that we do so well at threedownnation.com as well. So it can be overwhelming. And the days flew by in Hamilton. Like, I can't believe that the Grey Cup week is almost over. Part of that is fun, but also part of that is because you're going to the next thing. You're just so worried about, okay, what's coming next? And I should give a shout out to the other two younger bucks, at least on this podcast, and John Hodge and J.C. Abbott. These two are among the best in the country at what they do. They have come so far. Their want to, their give a bleat meter is so high. And I'm so impressed with you guys and very proud to call you teammates at Three Down Nation. We appreciate it. And obviously you do tremendous work as well. I was going to make a joke and say, you're okay. No, you do tremendous work as well. <laughs> you can. You know, and... I don't want you to talk about me at all. <laughs> but I will say this, for many, many years... I was a, a CFL fan who desperately wanted news from Grey Cup. And of course, year round, but especially from Grey Cup week when there is so much news, not just about the teams playing, but the league itself. And my guiding principle is we know that that tens of thousands of, of CFL hardcore fans who come to our site every day want that news as well. So when I go to a major event like this, I don't want to miss a lick of what I think could be an important piece of news Two people just like that. And obviously we know that thousands of the hardcores who listen or who who check out our site every day are the people who listen to this podcast. So thank you for all of your support as listeners, viewers, readers, for checking out the site throughout the week. You are the reason that we do what we do. Our website would be pretty pointless if nobody cared about the news that comes out of Great Cup Week or the other 51 weeks of the year. And that is why it is such a pleasure to work hard and and represent all of you by proxy when we go to these events. So thanks to our, our readers, listeners, and viewers for that. Yeah, it's one of the great pleasures of my life to be able to work alongside you guys and cover a league that I have loved since I was a little kid. I see the work that both of you do and in different ways and am, am awestruck by each of you. So it, it's one of my favorite weeks of the year to get to all be together in person and, and cover this event. Man, it was lots of fun. There's so many stories behind the scenes that we probably shouldn't tell on the podcast <laughs> it's nobody laughs but you know honestly to come together and, and share that week together is awesome and i mean we thank the readers and listeners and viewers and watchers or whatever you want to call them for tuning in and all that kind of stuff but also they keep us accountable right yes. they tell us what they want based on their clicks with what they want to read and listen to but also call us out and i think that's valuable so we're open to that. We hear from fans all the time who are passionate about this league. You know, they might say, you know, I like this, but why didn't you guys ask this question? Or why don't you look into this or check into that? Or why can't the league do this? Or why aren't they doing that? So full credit to the fans who are as passionate, if not more passionate than we are. But I got to say, you know, there were a number of favorite moments during the week, but I don't think I have laughed harder 
around you guys walking around our spot that we had in Hamilton and trying to get the exact pronunciation. I'm still not there yet. Of Jean Auge. I've told my girlfriend about it. My nephews, my family are probably going to hear about it. I'm going to work on it. And I promise Hodge, I will be at expert level for those two words. By the time we convene in Vancouver for Grey Cup, I think it's 111. My uh, my favorite point of the week, or one of them might have been our, our last episode of the pod where JC said Orlando Steinhauer, which is one of Dunk's like most hated pet peeves because it's not Steinhauer, it's Steinhauer. By the way, there are still members of the media after 25 years of doing this who call him Orlando Steinhauer, which is, <laughs> it's Orlando Steinhauer. It's not Orlando Steinhauer. But anyways, and then you immediately looked at each other and went, Steinhauer, Steinhauer, Steinhauer. That was amazing. It was caught on the pod. There's obviously lots of moments that weren't on the pod. I will share this. I was upstairs at the Airbnb in that Harbor View. I think it was called Harborton. I can't remember area of Hamilton. And I I, I crashed early because I wasn't feeling very well. I fell asleep at like nine o'clock. And I told you guys, don't worry about being loud when you come in. I got my earplugs in. And about 2.30 in the morning, I hear stomp, stomp, stomp in the front hall. And then I hear dunk, jet ouch because you couldn't stop saying it you couldn't stop you couldn't help yourself it's too funny it's so good and so fitting man I, jc needs to work on his pronunciation though uh, adge. <laughs> adge. in fairness he has the best french of any of us not bad for a jumbo cheeseburger i think it's true i guess true was arguably I don't was going to say maybe my second favorite. There were so many moments of Grey Cup that were funny. But reading that comment and then laughing about it in hindsight. So for everyone out there, <laughs> no, the three of us are not – what's the proper word to say these days? We're not, we're not a menage a trois. No, How we're, about we're that? not gay. I mean, love is love, and I fully support anyone like that. But we had a comment on our Three Donation YouTube channel that said, oh, it's cute of you guys to come out of Grey Cup week all sitting on the same bed at the Airbnb. But that was just to get us in the same shot on camera. Now, I'm happy for, you know, men who love men, women who love women, and however you want to go about that. But just for that one commenter out there, now you know. But he came with a big (laughs) uppercut punch at the end of his comment and calling JC Jr. Cheeseburger, and we all just laughed at it. Like, it was hilarious, and it might stick, but... There were so many funny moments over the weekend that we shared and that we shared with CFL fans, man. It's just a great event. And it's a reminder that this is one of the rare events of pure Canadiana left in her country. So I'm at least happy that the CFL, the Tiger Cats, the city of Hamilton did it its full service in the event that they put on throughout the week. And one more thing. First of all, I'm a little bit disappointed, Doug, that you – you explicitly dispelled that rumor on the show because I thought it might be fun to just let it let it roll. Why not let it roll? <laughs> he was making me feed him oysters out of my hand at the restaurant. Yeah, so you I were, think he was he was le- he was leaning into it initially. That's what we call a mixed message. But I will <laughs> say this: when you talk about Canadiana, I do think that sometimes it converge on a message of something along the lines of like, Oh, the, the great cup is Canadiana, which means that it's like one of the last things that like straight white people can get along and enjoy. And I will say something that I did like about great cup is there was more diversity there. 
And if we want the CFL to be around in 20, 50, 100 years, we need to welcome not just the same middle-aged white people who enjoy it. We need to find new Canadians. We need to find members of the LGBT community, which you just talked about, uh, Justin. Obviously, we are we are extremely supportive, not just on a personal level, but as an official level with 3Down of that community and, and any communities of, of, of color uh, to, to obviously support this game. I know, JC, you have a very diverse group of, of young men on your high school football team that you coach. And because at the end of the day, the CFL is for all Canadians, but Canadians doesn't just mean middle-aged white people who were born here. It means everybody. And uh, hopefully we can continue to engage those, those groups of uh, those minority groups. I know Randy Ambrosi talks about it on a regular basis, but we don't want that to just be a CFL thing. We want that to be a thing for, for three down nation as well as we grow into uh, into new communities. So thank you for your support in that regard. The one last thing that I think we should touch on here, guys, while I'm thinking about it in regards to Grey Cup is the ratings, because the ratings for the game, TSN and RDS admittedly combined, were up by the league's calculation 9% last year when they combined those two ratings. And from our calculation, we only had the English numbers last year. It was up over 14.5%. So that's a factor that shows the Francophones support their own. But, you know, I was looking at the breakdown and it goes into pretty good detail all the way across the board guys there was 475,000 women on average in the key demo 25 to 54 age group because I told this to my girlfriend at the time that watched the Grey Cup that is an extremely high number and it shows that the Grey Cup in and of itself is one of the most viewed television programs in Canada every year so I'm sure from the league's perspective, it was nice to see that the numbers were up. And I do kind of get the sense that when Montreal is good and Quebec is into it with the Alouettes, that this league just feels like it's in a better place and the television numbers would prove that. The 58th Vanier Cup kicks off on Saturday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time on CBC. The University of British Columbia meets the University of Montreal at Richardson Stadium in Kingston for Canada's National Football Championship. Who are you picking and why? I'm taking the Montreal Carabans, and it's for the same reason why I took them to win the Where's U-Tech your French? Bowl. I thought you liked to say Carabans. Well, Canada, fair enough. In fairness, my, my French is also terrible, and I don't, yeah, want, to come insult, on. I don't yeah. want to insult the French-Canadian community in this country with my terrible pronunciations. Uh, Marc-Antoine Decois is going to come after you. He is yes, going to come after you. Do. Uh, but my, you know, he's, he's, he's too busy partying it up in his home city right now after a great cup championship to come after me. But the Caravan simply did an incredible job against – a Western Mustangs offense that admittedly was without some key weapons. I don't think that quarterback Evan Hillock was fully healthy. Their two top running backs were out, but I mean, three picks in the first quarter was sensational. This caravan defense has yet to give up more than 16 points in a game this season. They play the Laval Rouge or three times this year, gave up a combined 20 points in those three contests. This is one of the, not just stingiest defenses the U Sports has seen this year. It is one of the stingiest, I would say, in the last 20 years. And when you can shut down your opponents and force them to make mistakes on offense, you've got a great chance, especially when you've got somewhat 
of a home advantage. This game is being played in Kingston, Ontario, which of course makes it a neutral site game, but UBC's got a long way to travel. And unlike, you know, the professional ranks where guys are used to moving all around the country, obviously the student athletes at UBC are not used to flying that far for football games. So I'm happy to take the Caravan to win their first Vanier Cup since 2014. They've been in two since then. This time, I think they get it done. This is going to pain me to say it as a UBC alumnus and a big fan of the Thunderbirds football program, but I am also picking the Caravan in this game. And the reason why is despite the fact that I think the Thunderbirds have more talent, I think the Caravan are a better team right now. And give you some details on that on the UBC side, they've got two potentially NFL caliber offensive tackles in Theo Benedet and Giovanni Manu. They've got some great future CFLers, guys like receiver Sam Davenport on the defensive side, you know, corner Jarrell Cummings, um, a fantastic linebacking core just across the board, but they've let a lot of teams into football games and then had to pull it out at the last possible minute. You look at their Hardy Cup victory against Alberta. If they didn't strip uh, Hetlinger on that final drive, they would have lost that football game. And that was a fumble that shouldn't have happened from an Alberta Golden Bears perspective. Even in the national semifinal against Sing Effects, you wouldn't know it by the final score, but the X-Men were pressing them for a lot of the first half of that game. UBC did not put their foot down for much of that contest. And they frankly should have won by a lot more based on the talent disparity. The Montreal Carabin are a completely different animal because of how physical and cohesive they are as a unit. There is not a lot of weaknesses there. They may not have the same caliber of guys who can be potential first overall or first round CFL picks or NFL draft picks, but they work together. They know their system and they absolutely smashed the Western Mustangs with that style of football. I think it's going to be a little bit of a rude awakening for UBC and they're not going to be able to come back from it like they have against some of their lesser opponents. I'll provide a little bit of balance here. I'm not going to pick the game because I'm on CBC's in-studio panel with Andy Petrillo and Donovan Bennett for this game. But I will say that UBC's team speed, I think, will be faster than anything Montreal has faced this year. And if you take Jonathan Senecal, the outstanding quarterback, away from this Caravan offense, especially in the run game, who else do they have that UBC should be scared of? And I think that's a question to me that I'm going to track throughout the game. But from UBC's perspective, the Thunderbirds have arguably, and I would say actually, the best offense that Montreal has faced all season long. So I think that's where this game is going to be won or lost. You mentioned the tackles there. Gavin Cokes at center is an outstanding lineman for the Thunderbirds. Shamar McBean has track level speed for UBC. Sam Davenport has made clutch plays. He has the makings to be a CFL slot back. Isaiah Knight is out here running like Eric Lapointe, according to Blake Nill, when Nill is back at St. Mary's University and trying to game plan for Lapointe, or it might have even been when he was at St. Francis Xavier way back. But nonetheless, that comparison doesn't come lightly. So I think that's where this matchup to me gets interesting. And I think if you look at that Western Montreal game, which we all watched together, that was to me more about Western not playing well 
especially Evan Hillock putting them behind early, and also the Mustangs being beat up, then it was Montreal actually going out and winning the game. If you get that many turnovers in a football game, it should have been even more of a blowout. I'm not saying Montreal's not good in full value, and I do agree with you guys that Montreal might be the better team and more consistent team right now. But UBC has some peaks that are elite and where I think they can take advantage of some of these matchups. Pat Tracy, the defense coordinator for UBC, is going to be multiple in what he puts in front of Montreal and Senecal. And you can't live and die on a quarterback in the run game. I've lived it myself and learned the hard way. Hodge, I know you hate when I bring this up, but as a dual threat quarterback in U sports, teams game plan for that. And they try to hem you in, and Montreal doesn't even have a running back that they can consistently turn around and hand the ball to and get a decent amount of yardage. So I think that's where UBC's defense is given the advantage in that matchup. And as long as UBC on offense can avoid, and I think this term is right, being Vancouver soft because Montreal is ultra physical. Those guys will smack you in the mouth every single play. Then I think the Thunderbirds are at least going into this game as slight favorites. Well, and I'll say this too, shout out to CBC for broadcasting this game. The Vanier Cup is the one game a year that U Sports really gets the love that it should from a broadcasting perspective. And fortunately, it will be in Canadian homes for people to watch and largely for free. My player to watch has to be Adam Lachance. Guard for the Montreal Caravan, six foot four, 433 pounds. And they pull him at every opportunity they get. Good luck to whichever UBC defensive end or outside linebacker has to eat those blocks all day because Lachance is a load. It's time for Hodges' heritage moment. On this day in 2004, Mike Pinball Clemens became the first black head coach in CFL history to win the Grey Cup. His Toronto Argonauts were underdogs against the BC Lions, but won by a score of 27-19 at TD Place Stadium in Ottawa. 41-year-old Damon Allen was named the game's most valuable player after passing for one touchdown and rushing for two more. The tragically hip Rocked the stage at halftime, performing Gus, the polar bear from Central Park, and Courage. Boys, I'm interested to know, which halftime show do you like better? The Tragically Hip or Green Day? We'll start with JC. I was seven years old, so I have no recollection of the Tragically Hip rocking the stage at this particular Grey Cup game. I think from a musical perspective... I have to say that I prefer the hip only because my dad might break into my house and assault me if I say I prefer Green Day to the the iconic Canadian band, the Tragically Hip. Exactly. You're not Canadian if you don't say the Tragically Hip, no matter how good Green Day was in Hamilton. It is true. It's hard to beat the hip. It's now time for the three-minute drill. Marc-Antoine Decroix went on an epic rant after the Grey Cup complaining about the lack of French signage at Tim Horton's field that was done on RDS. Did he have a point? I'm not French-Canadian, so I don't have the best perspective on it. I will say, in hindsight, the CFL probably should have done a better job at having both both languages represented, though I don't think this would have been an issue, obviously, if the Argos had been in the game. Moving forward, the CFL 
should maybe just do a little bit of a better job. Though, as we know from their comms team, they do have a ton of French representation as a league with their comms team. So I don't think it's a lack of French respect. It might have just been, you know, it, it's a national event in an English area of the country. Maybe next time we'll see more. We'll know next year in Vancouver, which has next to no local French community, as far as I'm aware. Lots of minority communities in, in Vancouver, not French. Argos head coach Ryan Dinwiddie admitted he found out about Chad Kelly's concussion from his wife, Abby, who read it on Three Down Nation. How is that possible? I don't know how that's possible. It seems mind-boggling that a story of that magnitude could break, and Ryan Dinwiddie doesn't find out about it until the next morning. I've had people say they doubt this story because other members of the Argos organization were informed, high-ranking members at MLSC as well. But if this is true, somebody clearly got their wires crossed because Ryan Dinwiddie should have been notified as soon as Chad Kelly left that interview room. Somehow they waited overnight. That doesn't sit right with me. According to Sportsnet reporter Arash Madani, veteran QB McLeod Bethel-Thompson is planning a return to the CFL in 2024. Where could he end up? There's a handful of places that I think make a lot of sense, and I won't go into great detail here, but I think the most logical places would be Ottawa or Hamilton. So much going on this offseason. Keep it locked to 3 Alouette's top rookie, Reggie Stubblefield, turned down a Bombers contract offer before returning to Montreal. Was that a move in terms of him shaking the globe and seeing the future? <laughs> Maybe. I'm going to ask Reggie Stubblefield who to take in the Super Bowl. That's what I'm going to do. <laughs> JC went on a mission to find out what's in Danny Machocha's backpack. How fun was your discovery? Man, it's it may be... The favorite article I've ever written for Three Down Nation, Danny was very giving with his responses. Apparently, that backpack is filled with meticulously kept notebooks that he compiles over the course of a season. And he guards with basically his life because he's lost them in the past or perhaps they've been stolen. Who knows? Who knows? But he will not take them off unless he's got a safe place to put them. Should be noted, though, when he went down and accepted the Grey Cup, no backpack on Machocha this time. He wasn't getting any champagne on that thing. Do you think that we could get a picture of the Grey Cup in the backpack? That would be be amazing. (laughs) At the parade. Get Danny to bring it to the parade. We'll get that picture. That has to be a heavy-duty backpack to hold the Grey Cup, though. That's true. Or the backpack in the Grey Cup. Is that a safe enough place for the backpack? You'd have to ask the joke. The 110th Grey Cup was not available on any TV stations on the in the United States. Was that a fail by the CFL? Yes, JC. As much as you disagree with me on this, there were multiple people that contacted me or commented on social media It said they tried to get the game on down there and they couldn't. And that's because, yeah, it was not on TV. Yes, you can log on CFL Plus, as JC stated. But still, sports viewing, and the numbers show it, especially the ratings for Grey Cup, happens on television. CFL. They don't in the States. Be better. Be better. Get your game on in the United States on television. It wasn't just a CBS sports issue. 
they could have gone elsewhere to find a way to get that great cup on television in the U.S. What did you want to rant about? I will personally apologize to the 158,000 people in the U.S. that tuned into the Grey Cup last year and had, and had to, and had to open their laptop. That's all they had to do. Open their laptop and watch it there. I'm so sorry they went through those terrible, terrible trials and it tribulations. Is, it is a thing, though. People don't want to have to do the extra work to pull out the laptop and set it up. Yes, they it just want it to turn so on the TV. To subscribe t- You want them to subscribe to CBS Sports Network that definitely is not on their cable package right now? Dude, we went over this. ESPN is an ad on most cable packages in the States. It's a specialty channel. It's with Disney, bro. You got to pay that special money for Disney. Or you could get it for free on your laptop. It's a fail by the CFL. We're moving on. Every person in this province deserves better. That was former punter John Ryan lobbying for the Riders head coaching job. Does he deserve legit consideration? Obviously not. No, he has no coaching experience. We just saw Jeff Saturday try this experiment with the Indianapolis Colts. It did not go well. If John Saturday Ryan couldn't get it done on Sundays, if exactly, if John Ryan wants to be a head coach, I think that's super cool. He was in pro football for almost 20 years, was an amazing player, but he's probably going to have to start with a low level assistant position just like everybody else. You can't just walk off the street and be the head coach of a professional football team. It takes more than that. Former Argos offensive lineman Bernard Williams has been released by the Philadelphia Eagles 29 years after his final NFL snap. How is that possible? Bernard Williams was suspended after his rookie year for marijuana use. He was actually suspended twice in I believe the 1995 season which the second one was an indefinite suspension and he never successfully applied for reinstatement so he's been on the team's suspended list for 29 years while he went off to play in the CFL the NFL apparently was going back through their old uh suspended reserve list noted this anomaly that they had a player who had been on there for 29 years and had to notify the Eagles that they needed to release him. If this happened anywhere except the NFL, we'd be calling it Bush league, right? Like it happens in the NFL and all of a sudden it's a funny story. Just puts it in context when it happens to places like the Is CFL. Is Menzel still on the CFL commissioner's exempt list? Might be. I wonder how long he'll be. Maybe. The 30 years. All-time CFL great Andrew Harris dropped a trailer for his new feature documentary, Running Back Relentless, on Grey Cup Sunday. How does it look? Oh me, oh my. It looks super intriguing, and I hope that the people support this documentary out there because if they do, perhaps that leads to more of them being done on CFL players in the future. Bombers receiver Kenny Lawler was asked about his advice for CFL free agents during Grey Cup week and said, quote, don't go to Edmonton, close quote. Gotta like the honesty, right, Hutch? You do have to like the honesty. That's obviously honest. And Lawler has made it clear previously he did not have a good experience in Edmonton. I felt a little bad for Chris Jones and company. They're, they're, they're just trying to get that team right, and they got smacked for... You know, essentially nothing during the Great Cup week. But 
who knows? We'll, we'll have to wait and see how the Elks manage in free agency this year. They were very active last year. Jones is already on the record saying they won't be as much so this year. And uh, we appreciate honest answers, especially when, you know, comms people don't jump in and stop them from saying something interesting. On that note. Feeling, oh. feeling bad for Chris Jones, a three-down nation first. I don't, well, I don't know about that, but. Anyways, we thank you as always for listening to the Three Down Nation podcast. We'll see you next week for another episode. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. 96% of Grammarly users say that it helps them craft more impactful writing. Would you agree? Grammarly helped adjust my tone to navigate tough work conversations. And it works everywhere I write, so I can quickly communicate effectively. Your teammate used Grammarly to summarize an important document, making a three-pointer. How did he do it? It only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. You made an incredible slam dunk to end the game. The meeting was canceled, and your team will go home champions. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done.